My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. to another day as we continue through the Word of God, and I'm so glad that you're joining me. I don't know where you're joining me, whether that be YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, podcasts, I'm not sure, but I'm just so glad that you're joining me here today and uh, really encourage you to share these as much as possible as we go through the Word of God verse by verse. And today we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, and uh, we are going to be starting at verse 15 today. And uh, we are going to be finishing at verse 37. So that's what we're going to be doing. So I'm glad that you're joining me. We've just started uh, this journey in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus has healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. How dare he do that on the wrong day? And the religious leaders have started to plot against Jesus and how they can murder him. So in spite of the rejection of the religious leaders, that the, there's still common people who are following Jesus and Jesus just shows that continuously that he is God's servant. And so that's what we're going to continue to read here in Matthew chapter 12. And let's start at verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, that they were trying to destroy him, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. There's only a few instances in the Bible when Jesus healed all the people. And this is one of them. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice on the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust. Jesus withdrew from public ministry when these people started to plot against him. Not out of cowardice, he wasn't scared, but in respect of God the Father's timing for the course of Jesus' life and the culmination of his ministry, which was going to be death. And it couldn't be allowed to peak too soon. Jesus was always acutely aware of God's timing in everything, as we should be also. So these great multitudes follow him and Jesus heals them all. He did what he could to escape the press of the crowds, but the crowds just followed him. But he didn't respond out of frustration or anger at them. He responded out of compassion. And so he healed them all. And as I said, you know, this is one of the few references in the Gospels where Jesus healed everybody in a specific occasion. But it was important, I think, and important and appropriate here because Matthew wants us to know that this press of the crowd didn't make Jesus impatient. He wants us to know that the determination of the crowd was actually their faith. Therefore, they were all healed, not because they all had perfect faith, but because they all had pure faith. And so we read here that Matthew is saying that this is what needed to happen to fulfill the prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This quote from Isaiah chapter 42 speaks of the gentle character of the Messiah. He's a servant of Yahweh, which is a very common and important designation of Jesus because Jesus described himself as a servant uh, in Matthew chapter 20. 
Peter, in Acts 3, in his sermon, gives Jesus the title, His Servant, Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, the praying people of God spoke of your holy servant, Jesus. But Jesus isn't just a servant. Jesus is the servant, and everyone should behold, as the Lord says, my servant. Jesus, the servant, is an example to all of us as servants. But he's also a lot more than that. He, he, he actually is our servant. He serves us, not only just in what he did in the past and did on the cross, but he serves us every day through his constant uh, love, care, compassion, guidance, intercession for us. Jesus didn't just stop serving you and I when he went to heaven. He serves everybody more effectively than ever from heaven. He says this prophecy in Isaiah, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus never spoke loudly. It refers to his gentle, lowly heart, to his actions. Jesus didn't make his way through some kind of overpowering personality and loud, overwhelming talk. Instead, Jesus made an impression upon people by the Spirit of God being upon him. Now, there's an interesting, some interesting phrasing in this prophecy from Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. It's actually another reference to the gentle character of Jesus. It's another reason why I love doing these Bible studies, because I, I, I like to bring out what these verses actually mean, so we can understand how to rightly divide them. A reed is a fairly fragile plant. But if a reed is bruised, the servant, capital S, will handle it so gently that it won't break, even though it's fragile and it's bruised. And if it's flax, what was flax? Flax was used as a wick for an oil lamp. Now, if you can't get it to light and all it does is smoke, then Jesus is not going to quench it into extinguishing. Instead, the servant, capital S, is going to gently nourish the smoking flax so that it will be fanned to flame again. See, often we feel that God deals roughly with our weaknesses and our failures, but the exact opposite is actually true. Jesus deals with our failures and our weaknesses gently, tenderly, helping them along until the bruised reed is strong enough and the smoking flax is flaming again. David Guzik said this, Jesus sees the value in a bruised reed, even when no one else can. He can make beautiful music come from a bruised reed as he puts strength in it. Though a smoking flax is good for nothing, Jesus knows it's valuable for what it can be when it is refreshed with oil. Many of us are like the bruised reed. We need to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Others are like the smoking flax and can only burn brightly for the Lord again when we are drenched in oil with a constant supply coming as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that imagery. And this was the imagery from the prophet Isaiah and this is what Matthew was talking about with Jesus here at this time. And then finally, Isaiah says, In his name Gentiles will trust. 
This quote from Isaiah chapter 42 speaks of the ultimate ministry of Jesus to the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. And that was something surprising and even offensive to, to Matthew's Jewish readers. Remember, Matthew is a Jew writing the book of Matthew to Jewish people. But even though it was offensive, it was scriptural. So there's not much they could do about it. Let's continue on here as we look at Matthew writing about Jesus in verse 22. Then one was brought to Jesus who was demon-possessed. He was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus displays his complete power and authority over demons in this situation, casts out demonic powers that the traditions of the day considered impossible to be cast out. So somebody says, could this be the son of David? The, The crowds reacted with messianic expectation. But the religious, in other words, they were like, well, maybe he is the Messiah. And the religious leaders go, no, 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 no. He actually, the only reason he's able to do that is not because he's the son of David. He's actually using it by the power of Beelzebub, which is Satan. Um, So then Jesus responds. Jesus knew their thoughts, that this is what they were thinking. Always remember, Jesus knows your thoughts, not just your words. And he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus had this amazing ability to know their thoughts. It was another mark of his divinity, but it's also a gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the word of knowledge, knowing something that you couldn't know unless the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. Jesus gave us access to that. And Jesus says, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, which is just an obvious statement. I mean, there's nothing really profound in that. I think it's just him stating something because of what he's about to say. I don't think he's trying to make that to be a statement of profundity. Jesus logically observes that it makes no sense for Satan to cast out Satan. In other words, when they said, no, the only reason that he can cast out demons is because he's using Satan to do that, Jesus says, why would Satan use me to cast himself, one of his demons, out of somebody he's occupying? doesn't make any sense. that He'd be divided against himself if he did that. So he says, okay, you explain to me, Pharisees, how Satan will benefit by the work I'm doing if I'm just doing it through him. So then he says, so by whom do your sons cast them out? So Jesus asks a question based on their wrong premise that he was actually operating under Satan's power. Because if that was true, how then how did their Jewish exorcists cast them out? Spurgeon said this, and I love this, a great quote. Envy causes people to condemn in one what they approve in another. I see that all the time, I think most frequently in the area of politics. 
and people's affi- political affiliations. Uh, people condemn in one what they approve in another. And uh, why does that happen? Because of envy, dissension, strife. And it was happening in religious circles in Jesus' day. It happens in religious circles today. It happens in political circles. It's it's something that has got nothing to do with God. It's got nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever. Jesus said, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Spurgeon said, though our Lord had power all his own, he honoured the Spirit of God and worked by his energy and mentioned the fact that he did so. So using an analogy about plundering the house, Jesus explained his authority to bind Satan's power. And he says, I'm stronger than the strong man. And in doing so, Jesus presents a very valuable principle in spiritual warfare because we have to remember that Jesus gives us permission to use his name, to use his authority, and he gives us the strength that we need to bind the strong man. William Barclay, Jesus also made it clear that he was stronger than the strong man. He was the stronger man who was not captive under the strong man. His message was, I'm not under Satan's power. Instead, I'm proving that I am stronger than he is by casting him out of those he has possessed. The very fact that I've been able to so successfully to invade Satan territory is proof that he is bound and powerless to resist. See, Jesus looks at every life delivered from Satan's domination and says, I'm plundering the kingdom of Satan one life at a time. And there is nothing in our life that must ever stay under the domination of Satan. The one who binds the strong man and will plunder his goods is our risen Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that should get an amen out of you, wherever you are. Okay, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. This, this is Jesus making a very definitive statement about where, which side of the fence you're on. There's no opportunity of sitting on the fence with Jesus. You know what happens when you sit on the fence with Jesus? You get a splinter in your rear end. That's what happens when you sit on a fence. Jesus says, no, no, no. You're, you're on this side of the fence. You're on that side of the fence. Nobody gets to sit on the fence. That was just my own little theological exposition there. Uh, <laughs> He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So arises one of the greatest conundrums to be put in front of Christians, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Jesus starts off his teaching about this point by saying, if you're not with me, you are against me. He wanted to remove any opportunity for neutral responses to him and his work. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. G. Campbell Morgan. Only two forces are at work in the world, the gathering and the scattering. Whoever does one contradicts the other. So that's how he starts. Then he goes on and says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Jesus solemnly warns the religious leaders against rejecting rejecting him. Why? Because their rejection of Jesus 
especially considering what they've just seen him do, heal somebody, cast out demons, showed that they were completely rejecting the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministry in and through Jesus. That the Holy Spirit's ministry is to testify of Jesus. Hence the warning of committing the unforgivable sin. The Holy Spirit's main ministry is actually to testify of Jesus. John 15, he will testify of me. When that testimony of Jesus is fully and finally rejected, then you have truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit and essentially called the Holy Spirit a liar in respect of his testimony of him saying that Jesus is the Son of God and he's the only one that can save you. And the religious leaders were getting very close to this. And to reject Jesus from a distance or with little information is bad. To reject the actual testimony of the Holy Spirit about Jesus is eternally fatal. It will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. The eternal consequences of blaspheming the Holy Spirit force us to consider it very seriously. So how can you know if you have in fact blasphemed the Holy Spirit? The fact that you actually desire Jesus at all shows that you are and cannot be guilty of this sin. But continued rejection of Jesus makes us more hardened against him, and it puts us on a path of full and final rejection of him. David Guzik says this about blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Some people as a joke or a dare intentionally say words they suppose commit the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They think it a light thing to joke with eternity, yet true blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is more than a formula of words. It is a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. Even if someone has intentionally said such things, they can still repent and prevent a settled rejection of Jesus. Adam Clark, Many sincere people have been grievously troubled with apprehensions that they had committed the unpardonable sin. But let it be observed that no one who believes the divine mission of Jesus Christ ever can commit this sin. So I hope that brings some comfort to some people today because I get asked this question a lot. How do I know whether I've done this or not? You can't love Jesus, accept Jesus and commit this sin. It's about the most simple way I can put it. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit. This is really interesting. Then he says, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now you have to remember that Jesus has earlier been quoted by Matthew as saying, if you confess me before men with words, I'll confess you before Father. Before the Father. If you deny me before men with your words, I will deny you with my words to the Father. Words are very important to Jesus. And this is why Jesus is talking here about a tree being known by its fruit. What comes out of you? The bad fruit of their words when they condemned Jesus actually betrayed the bad root that was growing in their hearts. And if they got their hearts right with God, then their words about Jesus would also be right. Jesus' point. So he says, brood of vipers. Jesus basically says to these religious leaders, you are sons of Satan. That's who you are. 
You're a generation associated with a serpent. You're not associated with God. And it's this evil nature that made of them speak of Jesus. How can you being evil speak good things? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words, our words reveal our heart. If there was good treasure in our heart, then that's what comes out with our words. Uh, if, there, if there was good treasure in the hearts of the religious leaders, then it would show itself in what they said and what they did. John Trapp, For every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Idle and wasted words are to be accounted for. What then of evil and wicked? Um, Adam Clark said this, that the sense of the ancient Greek word that was used for idle word is a word that does nothing, that neither ministers grace nor instruction to them who hear it. If this is true, many preachers might find themselves guilty of this sin. Uh, Just a quote by Adam Clark, which I thought was interesting. We have to remember there's no such thing as wasted words. All words are going to be judged. We're, we're judged by the confession of our words for Jesus. We're judged by our idle words. By your words, you'll be justified and condemned. Jesus answered an anticipated objection that he made too much of mere words. Instead, Jesus said, because words reflect the heart, then you can be rightly judged by your words. Now, Paul also wrote about this in Romans 10, talking about the very act of salvation itself and how we are saved and how we secure our salvation. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what he said. That leads me to our observation today. Many words were spoken to and about Jesus. Some of them were good and a lot of them were bad. Now, we have to remember that God knows what we think. So we can't kid ourselves that we can say one thing when we're thinking something different. Because that just makes you a hypocrite, but it makes you an obvious hypocrite to God. Your words, my words, are very important because they reflect what's in our heart. So we must think about them. You can't have idle words. I would say most of the times that I've had to apologize to my own children is because of words that I've spoken to them. Words that I then, upon reflection, think back on and think, well, that was not a word that I, I don't want them to remember, remember those words that was said out of anger or frustration. And so I go and apologize. And it's important, important for us to do the same with God. We have to ask for forgiveness for our words. But hopefully we're changing the pattern of our speech so that there are less idle words coming out of our mouth. The more that we become like Jesus and the more we show the characteristics of a discipline, more than a follower. So that should be something that really demonstrates who we are and who we are becoming in Christ being the words that come out of our mouth. That's why I say to people all the time, if you swear, stop it, because it's not biblical. Jesus doesn't want you to do it. And I absolutely guarantee you, no matter how proud you think you are, that if Jesus himself was standing beside you, you would not swear if you were a Christ follower. 
You wouldn't do it. So don't do it. Because he is watching and he does know what you think. And he lives in you. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of reasons why we should really be careful about our words. This is not to condemn anybody. This is just to convict us that we need to think about our words. So I'm going to leave it at that and pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that our words are important. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have control over our tongue and that we would remember that, God, it's the words that you spoke through your son, Jesus, that have such power in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for the power that your words have given us. Thank you that the power of your words allows us to live in the power of your promises every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day. Thank you.